Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I'm back with our regular roundtable crew. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hello. And with Rebecca Ford. Hi. We're all back after what kind of felt like a long winter's nap, for me at least, of being off of Twitter and not seeing new movies and taking a break. And hopefully a lot of awards voters were watching movies in that time because um, things are really about to get moving. There's a lot of events coming up. There's a lot of voting to be done. Oscar voting starts next week on January 12th. Um, So we're going to just kind of catch up and then look ahead a little bit. Um, And I wanted to start with the catch up part because anytime I did log on to Twitter, uh, often I regretted it because um, there were right wing uh, weirdos tweeting about Glass Onion. Um, but I felt <laughs> like I could get some kind of picture of what people were paying attention to over the holiday. Um, do any of you guys feel like you have a decent sense of like of reading the room, of what the mo- the story was movie-wise over the holidays for good or for bad? Glass Onion was definitely the most talked about, I would say. It, 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 like kind, it. Of, it kind of felt like you had two on-the-bubble Best Picture contenders launching Ben in that in Babylon and one really took off and the other kind of did the opposite. That's probably how I would describe the overall shape of it. I agree with you, David, but I also noticed maybe this is just anecdotal, but like for all the negative reviews that Babylon got and the bad box office receipts and all that, like I, I noticed a real strong contingent of people kind of coalescing to support that movie. Um, Matt Baloney from the town is a big fan of it. Um, friends of mine are sort of going to bat for it. I think people in the industry will go to bat for it now, especially because it's kind of this misunderstood box office failure, but it was a big risk that Paramount took in spending all this money to make it. Like, I don't know, in a very strange way, I feel like Babylon's bad weekend at the multiplexes was good for it as an awards movie. Hmm. Do you think that people want to line up to get behind a flop, though? I think when it's about Hollywood like this, yes. Yeah, hmm. I do. They they want to defend the expensive risk, you know? Yeah, I think when the messaging is like, you have to support original ideas or they're never going to get made anymore, there's a certain group of um, people on the internet who, who will fight for that, no matter how the film does or is critically received. I'm a little more skeptical. I think... The movie, if you compare it to something like Nightmare Alley, which bombed and had its detractors, that movie was better reviewed overall and I think had more, it was a little bit more palatable to a broader audience. A big part of why Babylon didn't work for, there's a certain group of people for whom the movie is just like too gross and too all, you know, it's messy. It's a very uh, chaotic vision and I feel like it, it misses in too many specific areas that you need to hit with the Academy. Um, at least for Best Picture. It's definitely going to do well b- below the line. I don't think it's out of it. But I I wonder if it has enough pockets of support. Because I definitely agree that I saw a, a good amount of people getting behind it. And I, you know, overall liked the movie. So I'm definitely not fully anti-Babylon. Maybe just <laughs> the last third. <laughs> um, but I, I just, it feels like it's a challenge for a movie 
with that combination of critical reception and box office bombing and just the nature of what it is um, to make that 10. But I wouldn't say it's out of it. I just, I, I don't know. I, I didn't come away from this weekend thinking it was well positioned, I suppose. But it does seem like you thought that for Glass Onion, which um, I agree was the movie that I saw with the most people talking about. And then Netflix came out with some numbers this week saying it was it's their third most watched movie by, you know, in 10 days it's been out. But Don't Look Up had more, but it had, a you know, Netflix numbers are what they are. But certainly was a hit by objective numbers that we know of in addition to our overall sense of buzz. Yeah. And the other thing about that movie that I was trying to figure out was what makes it different from the first times out as a, say, stronger Oscar contender, besides, I suppose, being on Netflix and getting that kind of mass instant viewership. Um, and I actually think what you said, Katie, about all those right wingers going nuts about it and... <laughs> Maybe it was just one. I don't know. I tried no, not to pay it, too much it, attention. it was absolutely a thing. Um, I think we know the person we're talking about <laughs> who sort of set that flame. But I almost wonder if that is what works in its favor in the same way Don't Look Up had this very broad appeal to liberal viewers and left-leaning voters, um, I think this movie kind of achieves the same thing <laughs> and has achieved a kind of resonance in a very accessible and academy-friendly way. So it, I kind of came away thinking, oh, this is this is the path, because it is, you know, a silly sequel, um, fundamentally, one that uh, a lot of us really like. But uh, I was struggling to see that part of it in the Best Picture conversation, and I think I get it more now. I kind of want also wonder if Glass Onion's take on like the empty genius of tech, you know, zillionaires. I mean, it's well, making yeah. fun of Elon Musk, like, but you know, the traditional Hollywood, you know, industry is going through a similar sort of reconsideration of these tech pied pipers who were like, follow us towards streaming, and everyone did, and now Disney Plus is in the hole for a billion and a half dollars, and Netflix is losing money, and like, it's just, I don't know, the streaming experiment seems to be at a sort of flux point right now and um maybe some people in hollywood will, will kind of watch glass onion satire of people who blindly follow new tech um and see something relevant and worthy about that glass onion a movie that is on streaming and i mean it had its theatrical release right. which Ironically. we talked about but yeah. it's a yeah. i mean if, is that the way that netflix gets invited into the club this year with a movie that's sort of digging at itself that's um that's one twist so we think Glass Onion like maybe has more of a shot at the ten. Does this like make Janelle Monae more of a contender? What other pieces do you like could fall in place for Glass Onion now? Maybe that it's a certified hit. Um, production design, I think, is definitely one of its bubble nominations. Uh, just given what it is, it's definitely worthy uh, as a competitor there. Um, I wonder if it's a real competitor to win adapted screenplay at this point. Um, oh, interesting. We've had that. We've had that lineup for Sarah Polly for so long. Yeah, and I, I, it seemed to do fine in limited release. It, it, as movies of its scope have tended to the past. It's few in months. like it's in like eight theaters, so it's kind of yeah, early, exactly. early days. But it didn't, you know, have that sort of catastrophic eight theater number that I think people were fearing. So, but it just feels like it's so beloved, particularly for the in Hollywood digs and things like that. That I could see it going really far there, and then yeah. Honestly, I feel like a Janelle Monet nomination, Best Picture nomination, is kind of a package for this movie. I feel like one mm. goes with the other. Mm. 
Well, I feel like we should also talk about Avatar, which was the the box office success over the holidays to Babylon's failure. Um, and a success in a way that was more or less in line with what people said. It's not a huger hit. It's not a flop. It's just making a ton of money. I can't totally read what the enthusiasm is around it. I feel like before the break, I was pondering, like, what if James Cameron wins Best Director and something else wins Best Picture? I don't. I honestly don't even know how I feel about that likelihood at this point. I'm not sure what we'll know between now and Oscar nominations to figure out how popular it is. Do any of you guys feel like you have a have a bet there? I mean, I think it's a lock for a crap load of nominations. But, <laughs> yeah. um, that's a technical term. Yeah, that's that's what it's called these days. But I <laughs> I, I think we've got a long way to go to to talk about it winning things. Um it does feel like it's it might be sort of a movie that cools um as the season goes on and we get further away from these you know box office opening numbers but um because i kind of feel like that's what happened with the first one and i feel like the more people i talk to about it you know there's a lot of admiration and respect and uh for the technical part of it but there still seems to be a bit of criticism for the storytelling so i'm not sure how that plays out as we move forward I mean, it's got to win the visual effects. I just feel yeah, like that yeah, yeah. Just give it to him now, and we'll just yeah. Call it but, <laughs> but beyond that, might be more of a question. I think that's fair. Could be a very similar performance to the first one. <laughs> yeah. What did the first one win? Do you do you remember offhand? Uh, the first one won visual effects. It also won cinematography and art direction, um, mm, which is mm-hmm. no longer a category um, now. Production design, but yeah, it could. The weekend is in the mix, right? For a song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that leads us to the shortlist, which came out um, December 21st, right after Avatar opened. And it's on several of those, including on the original song list. But um, Rebecca, you you kind of covered that for us and dug into the the snubs and surprises, as we like to say, because there were, there were a solid number of them. Yeah, especially the snubs, I felt like, really stood out this year. Um, you know, I think we all really liked Goodnight Oppie and uh, the documentary um, about the Mars rovers. And, and I f- that felt like it's played really well, um, but it was left off the documentary feature list. And, and you know, when you th- when you look back, that branch sort of has a habit of um, snubbing at least one sort of crowd pleaser every year. So I guess we shouldn't have been surprised, but I thought that was a, a pretty big bummer, to be honest. And it also likes to give the award to crowd pleasers, too. Like, the My Octopus Teacher model is yeah. right there. Like, pick a lane, guys. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and then the music, the original song, there were a couple of major names that were left off the list. I mean, Taylor Swift is the one that I feel like, the minute I was looking at the list, I was like, where is she? And for her <laughs> um, short film, All Too Well, she was snubbed. And and Kendrick Lamar had also had an, a short what do we call these? A short film that is inspired by music that... Um, <laughs> That's very it generous. A very, it's a fuzzy <laughs> term, which may or may not be why they didn't make this list, right? Yeah, the the music video adjacent uh, films do not seem to be welcome in this race, is what I took away from the snub of Taylor and Kendrick Lamar. But Taylor did get a nomination for original saw, song for um, Where the Crawdags Sing, and... Katie, I think you're the expert on original songs, so if you <laughs> if you want to catch us my, up on that. My personal obsession year after year, I mean, the other snobby and original song was the Turning Red song that Billie Eilish and Phineas yes. wrote, which is yeah. so good. It's such a great song. It's crazy to me that they would leave that out in favor of uh, some songs that I have heard that I don't think are great, and then some songs that I'm just not imagining are very good, which I won't <laughs> necessarily name. Um, I don't think there's a whole lot of, like, 
classics in the original song lineup this year. I think Lady Gaga, we've talked about as kind of the obvious one. And um, I'm a big fan of Not To Not To. Um, I just don't get why you wouldn't put Turning Red in there. It's a wild snub to me. Yeah, I thought they were weird in the score. You know, I'm not saying that Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross needed to be nominated for their incredible Empire of Light score or their really beautiful um, Bones on All score. But to not even be on the short list, that feels yeah. weird. I mean, the, the Taylor Swift thing makes sense because short film is like, that's the most cynical place to carpet bag if you're a huge celebrity. Mm-hmm. Because those are <laughs> filmmakers who, by and large, really need the attention. Like, that is career making in a lot of ways. But, but in score, you know, like... That, I think, is less fraughtly political in some ways. And um, I was disappointed to see Reznor and Ross uh, left off because I can't stop listening to both of those scores. And um, a lot of the other ones that did make the short list, I, I kind of almost found myself thinking, they had scores? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a weird year for score. I don't know if there's a real obvious um, front runner in there at all. They're, like mo- A lot of those scores don't really linger in my mind at all. Yeah, and like... Like, All Quiet on the Western Front, getting in there was interesting. I haven't seen that movie, but there must be something really notable about that score. Or or does that indicate somehow? Because I've seen kind of whisperings about that movie. It's, you know, it's a German movie on Netflix. Or maybe it's Austrian. Um, German, yeah. Like, does that mean that that movie has more legs than I think it does? It does. Yeah, I think it totally does. Because... Um, and I have a piece up this week about the cinematography, which is really beautiful. Um, but for it to play in so many um, categories you know, on the short list, you know, makeup and hair, original score, sound and visual effects really indicates that I think this is going to be the international feature that has a chance to get um, some breakthrough nominations. And isn't the big challenge for international contenders generally visibility because mm. you know when a movie really overperforms on the short lists like last year say you had something like no time to die which is going to get a lot of nominations below the line but it's still not really much of a best picture player whereas a movie like this you know it's not a giant blockbuster so we already have evidence that a ton of academy members in a ton of different branches have seen the movie and liked the movie enough to shortlist it even in areas where it seemed quite improbable like I had not heard much about the All Quiet on the Western Front score. That is not to say it is not excellent. Um, but it's, you know, it's it's a place where, to your point, Richard, some far more notable and more campaigned, I would say, scores did not make the cut. And so, yeah, I think it's a huge indication that the movie has what it takes to even get into Best Picture because people in the Academy have seen it and voted for it already. Yeah, and it has Netflix backing it. And it also is one of the only um, war films this year. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, I have a running theory that if there's a war film and people who are voters who don't understand sound, just check it off on their list because they're like, <laughs> war films are hard to make. Here you go. Did 1917 so, win sound in its year? I am assuming it did. I think it did. I mean, especially when we're looking at nominations, I do feel like that gives it an advantage. And it is a really well done film. I, I highly recommend watching it. It's a hard watch, but it's really well done and, and has some beautiful storytelling in it. So it's not like it doesn't deserve this. And I think it is um, it definitely one to watch. I, I sort of picturing a Netflix war room where they have a big map and they're moving all of the figurines <laughs> off of White Noise and Bardo and all onto All Quiet on the Western Front. There's this little figure of Daniel, uh, Daniel Craig in like a seersucker bathing suit. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, there, yeah, there's some still on Glass Onion. 
but I think they're pretty much off of white noise. That also premiered over the holiday. and It did. Yeah, didn't hear much noise, so to speak. It was very quiet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, not for nothing, uh, All Quiet on the Western Front is not a remake of a Best Picture winner, but another adaptation of the same book. Uh, the 1930 version won the third Best Picture Oscar. So, I don't know, it might, might help it somewhere. So now that we're in January, a whole bunch of events are coming up, uh, many of which we'll talk about next week. We're going to record next week's episode after the Golden Globes and after the SAG nominations have come out. That's two major events. Um, but this week, this first week of January, we're recording on Wednesday, which is the day of the New York Film Critics Circle dinner in New York. Uh, Richard, you'll be there. Uh, any high expectations or hopes for this year's event? You always hope for a fun speech. You know, the, the awards aren't televised or other, you know, recorded. I mean, I guess people can film on their phones, but usually one thing kind of sneaks out. Tiffany Haddish giving a long speech or Paul Thomas Anderson giving out his phone number to Tiffany Haddish, you know, that was a memory. <laughs> I remember Adam year. Sandler uh, introducing the Safdie brothers a couple of years ago. Yes, totally. Yeah. So it's it's usually fun. Uh, you know, I look, COVID is still around, uh, especially this time of year. I would not be surprised if there are some high-profile no-shows, unfortunately. Um, I know it's usually an event that most of talent, most of the winners want to try to come to, but it comes at an awkward time of year. You know, can I really set aside these travel dates when I am kind of have to set aside March for Oscars, hopefully, you know? Um, well, and have to be so, in L.A. for the televised events next week. And if that's exactly. Um, I think there have been anecdotes in the past where, like, a winner was literally doing their hair and makeup in the car on the way from the airport, you know, to the event, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so we'll see if, if people are up for that kind of mad dash this year. And then on Friday, um, so a day after people are hearing this, um, we, I vote for the National Society of Film Critics, which does not have an awards dinner or anything like that, but is another kind of, I think, critical, important way station on the way towards shoring up any given movie's awards chances. And I expect to see big things for, you know, the usual players like everything everywhere at that yeah, I know that it's hard to count on who's going to be here. And while people are listening to this, this has already happened. But looking at the acting winners from the New York Film Critics Circle, Colin Farrell, Kate Blanchett, Ki Hui Kwan, and Kiki Palmer all have incredible awards speech giving potential, especially yeah. at an event where they know yeah. they're going to win. Um, and I think we talked in December about how Colin Farrell getting up and giving a speech and being such a winning personality could really um, start building him a, a major head of steam. So maybe that starts at that dinner. Yes. So, Rebecca, you're going to be at a bunch of events in L.A., but I want to let you uh, log roll for yourself a little bit because you have many of these very charismatic and talented people talking to each other with Reunited this week, um, which kicked off with video with Paul Dano and Carrie Mulligan and gets, seemingly gets better and better every day as you're publishing these. Yes. I mean, you bring up Colin Farrell, and I think today we've published one of my favorites. He's in conversation with Emma Thompson. They did Saving Mr. Banks, uh, which they didn't have any scenes in together, but they became very good friends during the press tour. She asked uh, him if he's having any good sex. Yes. <laughs> and I wish I had a screen grab of his face in that moment because he's just like, what? Emma? <laughs> um, but he does not answer that. But he, you know, he's they're just so charming and funny together and 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 really get into sort of um, how they view their own legacy, which I thought was really interesting and, and 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 sort of exploring loneliness in both their films. So they're a great one. Um we also have uh, Gabrielle Union and uh, Gina Prince by the wood, uh, who worked on Love and Basketball together. And and I didn't realize that Gabrielle Union had actually auditioned for the the lead role and, and didn't get it. Um, so they actually have a, fun, a couple funny stories about um, being on set for that one that I don't think I'd heard before. It were really interesting. And then um, and then we have Darren Aronofsky and Hugh Jackman. It's just a, a great group this year. And I thought a lot of really revealing conversations. 
Yeah, the um, the part where Colin Farrell talks about the Criterion Closet because the New World is on Criterion and, and like how they film YouTube videos in there just made me just send Colin to the Criterion Closet, guys. Like, I know. This, we need it. The opportunity is right there. Um, okay, so Rebecca, you'll see a bunch of these people in person next week. Um, you and David are going to be helping us cover the onslaught of awards. Do you want to kind of give me the, the rundown of what people can expect next week? Yeah, so we have um, the Golden Globes on Tuesday. I mean, that's the major one, I think. Tuesday. Tuesday. and <laughs> Great our... awards night. Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> and our biggest question is who's going? Who's going to show up? Uh, you know, Katie, you wrote about the first list of presenters. So there are people coming from what we saw. Yeah, right? and like so. a pretty good list. I got into Armas, Jimmy Lee Curtis are both nominated and they'll be there. Um, the presenters, Tracy Morgan's one of them, Quentin Tarantino. Um, there are other Susan. Billy Porter, I think, is on that list. So um, it's pretty starry. I think that was a, a show of strength on their part. Yeah, I'm curious if they're going to have a couple more announcements that give us a big, bigger picture. But I, Dave, do, I do believe so, yeah. Yeah, David will be in, in the room. Do we have any sense of what that room's going to be like, though? Like, are, are, are like nominees going to be there? We think so? I think I so. I, yeah. That seems to be the vibe, right? Yeah, I mean, there there were quite a few who were all but confirmed, I believe, by Variety already. Um, Jamie Lee Curtis among them. The list of presenters indicated a certain degree of star power um, will be coming. And, yeah, I, I think I'd compare it on our last show to the, what I expect will be similar to how the Critics' Choice Awards usually are, which is most, but not all, Um Especially some of the A A listers who don't really have much of a shot, I would be surprised if they went. And then um, Friday is AFI Awards luncheon. Saturday is BAFTA Tea luncheon, and Sunday the fifteenth is the Critics Choice Awards. So I will be at all three of those <laughs> and very tired. Um, but I, I think Critics Choice is something to watch. I mean, they got a, they they picked a lot of the winners last year, and those people give notable speeches. So, you know, I think that in a week we're going to see, I think, a lot of what the momentum feels like in the room for these people and how their speeches affect um, their chance, uh, you know, at getting those Oscar nominations or wins. Yeah, I'm really curious if that everything everywhere momentum you were talking about in the fall where they all walk into a room together and all eyes are on them. Like if there's another movie that's come out since then or has gained steam that could get that share of attention or if that group continues to be like the bells of the ball this season. I'll also be curious, like if all of the kind of, you know, oh, gloom and doom with the box office and our our prestige movies dead, like that conversation has been happening all fall, how that hampers the feeling of these now that the the season is is getting started in in earnest um you know will people be defensive will people be you know sort of manically positive about it like maybe people aren't even paying attention to that discourse i don't i don't obviously they're paying attention to box office numbers i would think but maybe even not maybe not even that in the actor's case so i'll be curious to hear from you guys what what the tone what the tone is of this year I got. I wound up ranting to my mom about VOD numbers so for Christmas because my parents watched The Fablemans at home. They paid twenty dollars and rented it, um, and I was just telling her how like that number is not counted in how we count whether or not that movie is a hit. And I, I feel myself going more and more insane over this whole thing because um, I think a ton of people are seeing these movies in this way. Like those Lydia Tar memes are not coming out of nowhere, um, and maybe that that sense of not not optimism, but just like let's get over the doom and gloom. Maybe that's the energy they can bring to it. Yeah, I just got back uh, from vacation, caught up with my parents, and they truly watched like every contender available over the holiday, as did my grandparents. So, you know, 
they don't count, but everybody's watching them that yeah. I know. Just the Inches of Inisherin is on HBO Max, um, and, and Looney Tunes isn't. So that's something that people can watch now that they're taking <laughs> things off HBO Max. The new HBO Max. Yeah. Okay, so we have a lot of awards to look forward to. As I said, we'll uh, record next week after the Golden Globes and the SAG nominations. So we'll have many tea leaves to read by then. Um, but for now, I want to move to a new release because it's the first week of January and there are new releases. And I'm genuinely excited to see what happens when Megan is unleashed upon America. And Richard, you have seen it. You've survived Megan's terrifying gaze. Uh, how'd it go? Well, it's not that terrifying. It's a PG-13 movie, so bear that in mind. It's wow, not, okay. you know, some unrelenting gore fest or whatever, which I kind of almost wish it was because that would balance out a little bit better the sort of meta arch comedy of the whole thing. You know, from the first trailer, everyone, even from the first photo um, of, of the titular Android doll creation, um, people were kind of... It became kind of a gay Twitter meme, like, she's yassified, she's, you know, like, uh, she's, we, everyone was kind of, like, rooting for her, even though she's, you know, a murderous doll. Um, <laughs> that can is great for a movie, um, but it could also, depending on the movie, ultimately be a hindrance, like it was for Snakes on a Plane, because there was that huge viral campaign, mostly just based on that title, or entirely based on the title. And then the movie itself didn't do very well, because what could live up to that hype? Certainly not a mediocre to bad action movie. Megan is much better, like, as an actual piece of film, is, is better significantly than Six on the Plane. So I think it can withstand a lot of that expectation and a lot of the hype. I think it it's conscious enough of the jokes it's making, while also not being too winky to the audience. It takes itself seriously where it counts, and um, it's suspenseful. And the acting, Alison Williams is really good. She This is only her fourth movie. Um, wow. And she's mostly... Huh. I mean, entirely done thrillers and horror. And I think she's found a really good niche there. She works really well in that environment. Um, she knows how to kind of play that mix of slight campiness with actual seriousness. Um, and Megan herself, yeah, I mean, what can I say? She should be on the next season of Drag Race. <laughs> Um, yeah, apparently uh, Allison Williams is kind of emerging as a scream queen. I mean, maybe that's not quite right for the role that she's in than that. But that well, that's the term great. I used in my review. Yeah. Oh, great, great. <laughs> that she's kind of a she's kind of a modern like a modern version of that in that she does have to navigate the way that horror some horror movies now are very um, self aware and commenting on something, but also want to be taken seriously. And there are emotional stakes in, in Megan as much as there is all this kind of ridiculous campy comedy. And what, what Alison Williams, some innate thing within Alison Williams just really understands that, that balance of, I'm going to project like an actual character who is lives in this world while betraying just ever so slightly that I, the actor, am aware that this is silly, but not too much that it becomes kind of just an easy joke. I feel like we're all rooting for Megan, right? Like, even as someone who doesn't seek out horror at all, like, I just want things to be enough to draw people into theaters, even if they're silly killer doll movies. Um, and it seems like it probably will be. Yes. Horror has done well in that department. Yeah. I think the big test after Megan, um, or in addition to Megan, is Cocaine Bear, <laughs> which similarly has <laughs> a very funny title, a funny trailer, a promising trailer. Elizabeth Banks directed it, which is interesting. Um, but again, like Stinks, that, that's, you know, Megan was sort of a viral hit before release because of the photo and the trailer and the dancing and all that. Um, and her singing, um, Sia. 
whereas Cocaine Bear is mostly just that title and the, and the, and the logline premise. But then the trailer kind of delivered on that, and um, I don't know. So we might be living in a, a winter season of meme movies, which, look, if they're getting people to theaters, I'll take it. Yeah. Non-IP movies, unless you count Cocaine Bear as IP. Um. Well, it's a true story. <laughs> I mean, technically it is, but... No, it know. is. <laughs> yeah. That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, find us on Twitter at HWD. Find us at VanityFair.com where you can read all of Rebecca's amazing Reunited series and more of our great coverage of this award season. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And David. David Canfield 97. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the most exciting Golden Globes presenter goes to Richard Lawson. Cocaine Bear. Cocaine Bear. 